So, uh, Acts chapter 7, actually 6 verse 8, and we're going to try to cover some serious ground and just kind of go over uh, Stephen's sermon here. Might be a little bit of a Acts 7 from 30,000 feet flyover. In Acts 6, we see the... Uh, really what appears to be the instituting of the first deacons in the church. Um, Faithful men that are raised up in order to take care of the more practical matters of the church so that the apostles or elders can do more of the spiritual matters, attend to those things of the diligent study of the word of God and to prayer. And we saw the qualifications from Acts 6 of what those men were to be like. In 6.3, they were to seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. So the first thing was uh, they were to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, uh, who would be appointed over the, the business. And so there's a name of a list of the guys that are given there, uh, studied last week. And the result of that good division of, of labor and, um, and work caused revival to happen in verse 7. The word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And not only that, really exciting that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So um, kind of if you were to kind of take a chart and say, you know, that a deacon, the office of deacon would be more heavy on the practical matters and less heavy on, say, the preaching of the word. But I wouldn't say not heavy on the preaching of word. And we're going to see that in the example of Stephen, just that their tasks are more given towards practical matters. And I say the same for uh, elders, pastors, or shepherds, that they are less heavy on maybe the practical matters of things and are to give more time to the diligent study of the word and prayer. So it's not all or nothing of either. It's just that, um, in fact, kind of my life seems I have a whole lot of, I'm heavily involved in the practical matters of the church. And I try to give divvy that off as much, but I was the last guy at the church yesterday at the church work day, you know, it was like 9.30, 10 o'clock, or sometimes it's been midnight, sometimes 3 a.m. when I'm getting out of those work days, you know, but it's just, those are, Sometimes it's not all the time, but you know, it's uh, just, that's kind of the, the divi- division of the office labor. A lot could be said on that, but what I want to get at is what Paul tells Timothy in first Timothy chapter three, that those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves good standing and great boldness in the faith. And so I believe when a, when I'm, and kind of the conviction in a lot of circles is that it's men that hold that office, but I'm not opposed to uh, women in that office. I think deaconesses are not an entirely unbiblical thing uh, regarding the deacon office. Um, but when people are serving well within that gift, that they become very bold in sharing the gospel. There's something about laboring for the Lord in obscurity and cleaning a toilet that's being used for the gospel, you know, and, and setting out cups of water and, you know, polishing the church and, 
you know, and then going out and taking care of these different practical things that your life is just consumed with Jesus in the needy, greedy sort of things, you know? And so, man, you just want to tell people about Jesus, you know? And that's the story of my life and in especially my younger days when I was just faithful in the little obscure things, serving the tables, you know, taking care of the widows here. You know, these aren't the famous people, you know, these are the people that no one knows that this is happening. When you're there cleaning the bathrooms at the church and you're cleaning the house or you're fixing that light bulb or you're making sure the furnace is on. And, and it's not just the office. I think as we just are serving the Lord, that that's the case. And so we're going to see that Stephen, faithful as a deacon, obtains for himself great boldness in the faith, okay? Uh, So verse eight of chapter six, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So not only was the requirement back in verse three that these men were to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And then here we see full of faith, Full of power. This guy's full of it, you know? Uh, He's never running on empty, it seems, you know? And I just was reading Stott yesterday, and I just took a snapshot of my Kindle, and it said, uh, Stephen was full of the Spirit and wisdom. He himself is then described as full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and now he's reintroduced as a man full of God's grace and power. Uh, Verse 8 there. So full, 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 full. And then uh, he evidently gave people an impression of plentitude. I like that. Like, this guy is just full of... And then G. Campbell Morgan explained it as uh, when it was grace and power, that he's full of sweetness and strength. Sweetness and strength merged into one personality. Um, and so I just, I appreciated that, thought I'd share it with you. Um but we are going to kick the speed up just a little bit. I hope you don't mind. Okay. Then there arose from, so he's, he's working great wonders and signs among the people. These things validate the gospel that he's preaching. And there arose from some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. These are guys that come from families who were once slaves, Roman slaves, and they're Jews. And so they uh, had their freedom purchased or they were freedom from, dif- from di- freed from different government thing. Um, you know, enactments or however these slaves would end up being freed over the course of time. And uh, from the regions, they're listed Asia, but they were still Jews and they were um, on the anti-Christ side of things. And they would dispute with Stephen. And I love this verse 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And, you know, there's just something so amazing when a man or a woman is full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power, full of, you know, the spirit. Um, just like uh, earlier on in Acts, I think it's chapter four, that the Jewish leaders looked at Peter and John and they knew that they were untrained men, but that they'd been with Jesus. I'll tell you guys, that's the story of my life. Okay. Um, high school degree. Awesome. Go Honkers, right? Lakeview. Um, School of Ministry. I went to not even a Bible college, a school of ministry that our church put on that was super low key. Okay. It was faithful. It was regular, great teaching. But I mean, Audrey, sorry, you've got a better degree than I do. I already know it. Okay. Uh, And so, and I only made it halfway through that year 
when my dad had a stroke and I had to quit the school of ministry and take care of my dad. Okay. Um, so I don't, I don't have ever a degree from Bible college probably shows. <laughs> and then I went to welding school cause I knew that I was going to be a pastor in a rural area and I'd probably need to pay my way. Right. So I'm going to welding school. Love it. Doing great. Voted the president of the welding club. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I know how to talk. So they were like, throw that guy up there and did one term before I was called to go on staff as a youth pastor. Didn't even finish welding school. One term, right? Lots of good welds that I did, you know, passed a lot of beads. But uh, then it's been 20 years since I've welded. So that came in handy. Um, (laughs) I would just electrocute people and burn holes and stuff. So it's a good thing I don't do it anymore. So guys, like not a lot of qualifications here on this guy. All right. Untrained, uneducated, but... By the grace of God, I've been spending time with Jesus. And that's what I encourage you guys in the tractor. I mean, most of my education was in a tractor listening to sermons. That's lots of back and forths on that. Okay. And so here we have Stephen, who's a deacon serving in obscurity, waiting on tables. Okay. I've done my time waiting on tables in soup kitchens and in senior centers and I used to volunteer my time in the middle of the school day to go down to the church. And we had these chairs that had silver. It wasn't real silver, you know, but it was just stainless steel legs. And the little kids would go up and touch the stainless steel legs and get fingerprints all over it. And so my job during my release period of school was squirt, 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 you know, just serving in obscurity. Nobody knows that I'm down there, but I'm down there praying for the people that are sitting in those chairs and then the porcelain throne that people were going to be sitting on. It's like, pray, Lord, I just pray when this person's sitting here that they would just have an experience with you. Just replace the toilet paper. Okay. And uh, when you're serving in obscurity, the Lord works in your life in a way that all of a sudden, like he gives you these abilities to speak in such a wise way and powerful way that just people can't resist it. Um, And so moving on, then they secretly induce men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him. They seized him and they brought him before the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law for we've heard him say, This Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly and saw his face as the face of an angel. So, um, so it is true that they stirred up false witnesses and, um, false witnesses and, they, and then 11 secretly induced men to say this or that. So now here's the thing, what they said wasn't entirely untrue. Okay. Now Stephen would quote so much of what Jesus had said. And it's true that like, there's a replacing of the old ways happening, but it's not as much a replacing as it is a fulfillment. And so that was offensive to the Jews, um, but they were misunderstanding Christians value the law, but we understand that the law of Moses has a purpose that's beyond what just the Jews rules and rituals, like they were missing the point of the law. 
Uh, the temple is valuable and we love the temple, but the temple wasn't the end. The temple was a picture of the, what the Lord was going to do in the temple of our hearts. And so for the next 53 verses or something like that in the chapter seven, everything that Stephen says is going to be answering these accusations against the law of Moses and against the temple and the customs. Okay. So you got to kind of keep that in mind. Why is Stephen going to say what he's going to say? It's all addressing the gospel fulfillment in laws, rules, customs, and the temple. Okay. But I just got to say, and this is just a cool verse in verse 15 that, um, when they were, this, these are non-Christians that hate Jesus and they're watching Stephen talking. He's full of the spirit. He's full of wisdom. And when he's, uh, saying it, his face is like the face of an angel. Uh, I'm reminded of some song back in 2000 and it was like one of the buzz ballads back in the day. It's like, with the kiss of an angel. Anybody, who was that? It's been on my head all day and I just can't. Seal. Seal? Something about the lips of an angel and the kid. Willem, I'm sorry. You should not be thinking about these things, but <laughs> just we'll just go with the face of an angel. Okay. Charles Spurgeon said, when you preach about heaven, you ought to have a glow about your face and a glimmer in your eye. And when you're teaching about hell, your current face will do. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. Verse seven, or chapter seven, verse one. Then the high priest said, are these things so? It was the custom, it was the law, that when people were accused of something, give them a chance to answer for themselves. This high priest, by the way, is Caiaphas, the same high priest of Jesus' trial. So, interesting parallels here. And a simple yes or no answer was not going to suffice for Stephen. He's going to take, I think, the next 53 verses or something like that, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You must be with the Calvary Chapel around here. Because, all right. So here we go, guys. What he's going to do is he's going to take something like 53 verses to tell a history lesson of Israel. He's going to be telling this history lesson to people that already know the history lesson, but he's saying it in a way that's addressing those issues that they have with him. And um, there's something that the Jews love about their God and their history, and their temple, and their customs. And so I've gotten to share with um, Jews many times, and it is an exciting thing to do, especially when you are more passionate about their own law and customs than they are. And the Messiah, I mean, they're like, where did you hear all this? I'm like, and that's what the book of Romans says, that we should be provoking them to jealousy with our love for it all. All right, so he's going to, in a sense, be provoking him to jealousy. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our fathers, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when he, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. 
and the nation to which they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So by the way, maybe you're not super savvy on Old Testament stuff. And I don't blame you. Like Old Testament was hard for me. And the whole kings and captivities and stuff and splitting civil war and all this, like it took me a while to get that. But here's just a really good, like if you can handle like Stephen's sermon, like you've got a lot down. Okay. And so he starts with father Abraham, father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father Abraham. Okay. And he, he's talking about how God was moving in Abraham's life before there were the institutions and the laws and the temples and not that you don't value those things, but the, the God of grace was working in the grace of the gospel before these things that had become idolatrous to the Jews were even about. And God was going to use a period of 400 years as, um, as a purifying thing for the Jews uh, as well. And so it's prophecy there that they would be spending those 400 years in Egypt. Uh, Verse nine, and the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. You might underline that, but God was with him. Uh, Joseph went through uh, horrific experiences as a slave, but he never was alone. And it's the same for us. And it's neat that Stephen just made sure to put that in there. And he delivered him out of all his troubles or out of all of his miseries or out of all of his tribulation and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And so what you have here is uh, Stephen is actually telling the story of Jesus, but through the type that came a couple thousand years earlier, the type of Joseph. So Joseph was just the rapscallion, you know, that his brothers, the rest of the tribes of I don't know if rapscallion is a word. My grandpa always used that word. You rapscallion. Thank you. Um, So Joseph was just that little pesky brother, you know, coat of many colors guy, you know, and his brothers hated him. And they hated these prophecies that he would rule and reign over them. And so they betrayed him for how much? I think it was like 30 pieces of silver, you know, something, something similar to someone else who was betrayed by silver. And it's a type, his first coming, he was rejected by his, um, and he came as a servant to save, okay? But his second appearance to his brothers, he's going to come as a ruler who is going to save them as well. And they'll receive him his second. So it's all typology. It's a type of Jesus. And uh, what was I going to say about the second coming? Oh, it's prophesied in like Zechariah chapter 14, you know, uh, where they'll look upon him whom they pierce and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their own son. And they'll ask him one day, where did you receive those wounds? And he'll say, I received them in the house of my friends. And so it's, it's all prophecy of Jesus. So he's using their story 
to kind of preach the gospel to them, which is great. It's Christ-centered preaching from the Old Testament. And verse 15, so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Verse 17, is this a good pace for you guys? Only like 60 more verses to go. Okay. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Interesting. The time of the promise. Now, doesn't that sound like a nice, wonderful, hopeful phrase? The time of the promise. Normally it is like in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born under the law, born of a virgin to rescue those born under the law. That's a nice hopeful. But the time of the promise here was the time of the promise of the 400 years in slavery in Egypt. It still was a promise though, and it still got to happen. Promise is a promise and a fact's a fact. And so the people grew and they multiplied in Egypt. They multiplied like bunnies, something like 72,000 to 7.3 million people in that span of time. They don't call it the fertile land of Egypt for nothing. Okay. uh, (laughs) Till another king arose who did not know Joseph, I'm just glad you're not wearing your shirt today, Lonnie. Um, (laughs) This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, so for 40 years, he's prepared in like part one of the master's class of ministry. He was equipped to be mighty in word and deed. In another 40 years, he's going to be called to be used by the Lord. And he says, I'm a man who can't talk. I don't even know. But... He used to be a guy of mighty in word and deed. It was all part of the Lord's preparation for him. Um, He was 40 years old. It came into his heart to visit his brethren, verse 23, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And so he's getting at, like, Israel has a history of not being ready to move when God's telling them to move. He went out. He was equipped and he was prepared to rescue them. But they wouldn't have the rescuing. He supposed they'd be ready for it. They weren't ready for it. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, uh, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So again, not ready for salvation, not ready for the Prince of Peace to come. Um, I like just a little while ago when Stephen was talking about uh, the sons of Jacob betraying Joseph and then needing to go get the grain uh, that he called them our fathers. And so he was taking part in that, like, I was a, like, we're all from this group of people that rejected Joseph and sold off Joseph. And now he's kind of getting in his, his little sermon here. We're all from this group of people. Like, I'm not from the line of Moses here. I'm from the line of the people that were 
not ready to be rescued and we're content just fighting with each other and not having a prince of peace come reconcile us. Do you want to kill me as you did that Egyptian yesterday? Verse 28. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I read just a, in my old notes as I was driving out here um, that and the Lord doesn't want anything man-made and of the flesh to be between us and him. When we're in his presence, remove those things that would cause a separation between us and him that is um, man-made. And, I don't, you know, that ministered to me as I was reading that. But I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt as I've heard their groaning and they've come down to deliver them. And now I will, I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one that God sent to be a ruler and delivered by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so he was 40 years old when he left Egypt. I'm not 40 years old yet. I'm 39. I'll be 40 in November. So it's kind of crazy to think like, if I was Moses, you know, it'd be all of this great training that I've got living in Egypt, brought up mighty in word and speech. And then my people didn't want me to deli- be delivered and I was afraid and I just go run off and I'm a sheep shearer, you know, or I'm a sheep herder in the land of the Gentiles. Take myself a Gentile wife. Take, I have a bunch of Gentile children. It's actually a picture of Jesus when you look at it. And uh, 40 more years goes by and I'm out as a herdsman that would make me 80 at this point. Okay. So 80 years old and he's just right for ministry. (laughs) It's like, ah, you know? And so, uh, there's a pattern of 40 years in Moses's life. You can do the math, but, uh, verse 36, he brought them out after he'd shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the red sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So, another 40 years in the wilderness, which would make him roughly 120, you know? Um, And you remember when he died, it says that the vigor of Moses was as of that of a young man, you know? So uh, verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren, him you shall hear. Okay. So Moses, before he died, prophesied of a prophet who would come that would be mightier than even Moses. Now, Moses was like practically worshiped by the Jews. So who could this possibly be? And we know that that's Jesus. And when you read the gospel of John, we're studying it right now in Prineville, it continually comes up even just through the first six chapters. Like, could this be the prophet? Could this be the prophet? That's who they're looking for. This guy that would come uh, in the line of Moses. Uh, Verse 38 This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us. Uh, And so he's, he's letting them know, like, I value the law. I know that the law is beneficial. We're not 
We don't hate the law as Christians. Um, we know where it came from, and the law is profitable. Um, it's good. They're living oracles, he calls it in there in verse 38. Verse 39, but remember, like, you guys can't forget this as he's talking to these uh, Jews. Our fathers would not obey it and rejected it. It's kind of like super hypocritical of them to be like, what are you doing coming in here just totally disrespecting the law? And it's like, do you happen to remember that when we got the law, we like went into fornication mode and started making idols and just, you know, so don't get all hoity-toity with me. You know, you don't even believe what you're talking about here. Um, the one and uh, they rejected it. And then their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They wanted to go back saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it's written in the book of the prophets. Uh, I think this is from Abel. Uh, Abel, not Abel. Um, who's the shepherd prophet? Amos. Amos, thank you. All right, all right. Okay, been a long day. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also look up the took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Riphim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So he kind of hops and fast forwards from Moses's giving of the law to Israel's idolatry on day one of the law, building the golden calf. And then that never ended to the point of through their history, hundreds and hundreds of years, they would continually go to serve the next crazy, wacky idol, idols of sexual immorality, idols of child sacrifice, idols of paganism, idols of polygamy, this and that and the other. And, and they got what they want in the sense that uh, that prophecy out of Amos was that they would be, hi little kids, uh, they would get what they want, they would go to Babylon, and they can just go ahead and go worship those Babylonian gods. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers having received it in turn also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Okay, so he's telling the, the uh, accusers now, remember, God was still on the move when we didn't have the temple and we were just in tabernacles. Like God was still moving and we got to remember that. Verse 47 though, but Solomon built him a house. However, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet says. So he's reminding him, you're accusing me of wanting to destroy the temple. That's not my heart at all. But the heart of the Lord is that there's something bigger and better going on than what's happening at the temple. Um, and remember when you even wanted to build a temple, the Lord's response to you was, uh, verse 649, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? And I always think of that when I sit down on the couch and I push the ottoman up to it. You know, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. <laughs> and then I tell Lindsay, where is the house you will build for me? Whom of you will he? Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I apologize. <clears throat> Has my hand not made all these things? So things seem to be going well in this sermon today, don't you think? You know, like, okay, you got them listening, you know. Stephen, you've thrown in a few good history lessons. You've cracked a few jokes. They seem to be softening up just a little bit. Now we're going to move to part three of this outline, uh, sermon outline from Stephen today. It's going to go pretty well. Are you ready? Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Okay, that was um, quite the transition. (laughs) Um, But it's true. He begins to correct them for their idolatry, for their hypocrisy, that they're stubborn, they're stiff-necked. When you read the Old Testament, that phrase stiff-necked is constantly used. uh, Or in the Old Testament, it says that they would shrug the shoulders at God. You know, it's one thing when people are like, no, thanks. You know, I disagree with you. But when they're kind of like, eh, like you did not just shrug your shoulders at me, you know, (laughs) then you jump across. Okay. Um, Or here's a good insult. Use that one the next time you start arguing with somebody. (laughs) You uncircumcised. And we know from the New Testament that speaks of you've never been changed by God. You've never had a heart surrendered to the Lord. You've never had your flesh dealt with and taken away in the gospel. And that is what he's saying to the Jews. Uh, The Jews, who, by the way, were totally into circumcision. It was like their thing. So when he calls them uncircumcised, the air just gets sucked out of the room. They're like, how dare you? You know, um, and so which of the, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. In Matthew 23, it's a scathing rebuke to the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says, woe to the Pharisees. And it's this huge woe, woe, woe to the Pharisees. But there's one part where he talks about um, the prophets that they killed between the posts and the temple. And he, call, and he says to the Pharisees, you did it. You killed the prophets. Um, even though it was like their fathers that had killed the prophets, Jesus was like, it was you guys. And so Stephen's kind of doing the same thing here. Um, they killed the ones that foretold the coming of the just one. By the way, the just one, capital J, capital O, uh, is speaking of Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. This is Hebrews chapter 2. It talks about, um, and if, if those that received the law by angels didn't keep it and fell under judgment, how much more do we who've received the gospel and had it lived out in front of us by the son of God himself, if we were to reject that gospel, how much worse wrath is upon us when we've rejected the son of God himself. Um, and, uh, so that went well. I think that it's, there's going to be probably be a good response here for Stephen. It's, it's all going to be okay. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. What a phrase, cut to the heart. Doesn't Hebrews chapter 10 tell us that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword? It's able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what happened. The word of God was like, like daggers, like well-driven nails into these guys. 
But the word cut to the heart means that they were furious. Furious. And then it says, they gnashed at him with their teeth. And the literal translation of that is they grind, grind, I think the tense is wrong here. They grinded. Thank you. Ground their teeth. Okay. But that also speaks of furious, right? And one of my favorite things to do with uh, my kids is I always love to be like, you know, when they're playing with me and trying to, like lately Tatum's been calling me mom. And she's like, hi, mom. Hi, mom. And I'll be like, you know, and I'll, and so after studying this week, I've kind of, you know, and uh, start kind of showing my teeth at them, like, you know, and these guys, they're, they're so mad at Steven that they grind their teeth and they're furious, okay? You can hear them gnashing at him with their teeth. Have you ever been that mad? Anyone here ever been that mad that you're just like, you know, nobody, no one, we're all good. We're all calm, patient people here. Some of you guys are like ready to go to the Super Bowl right now. And you're like, okay, (laughs) but he, here's the contrast, but he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Boy, if this doesn't tick them off even more, they're all, he's like, everything's okay. I see God. And they're like, even more now, you know? (laughs) And so they see all sorts of things like Jesus, you know, he who confesses me before men, I will confess before my father in heaven. Here, Jesus is standing in front of the father, confessing Stephen, who just didn't done like one of the most bold sermons in the early church. He's going to be the first, oh, spoiler alert, he's going to be the first martyr in just a couple minutes. And Jesus is confessing him. So he sees heaven, the glory of God. And he says, look, everyone, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then they all cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. We all are parents here. Have you ever had your kids plug their ears, um, whether at, with each other, because they don't want to, they don't want to listen to each other. And that just causes the, the peace level in the home to denigrate just a little bit, you know, to go DS to descalate, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm going to plug my ears now. Okay. That does not help. Okay. But they, I can't hear this anymore. And they rush at him. They run at him with one accord. Everybody's running at him. And they grab them and they go to the place where they execute people. In fact, it's believed, I mean, the main execution spot was Golgotha, north of the gate. This is, they'd take people, the place of the skull where Jesus was at. So it's believed Stephen was um, killed in the same area and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul uh, the history behind this is that um, whoever was leading this uh, mob was the one that was giving the green light to the execution. So everyone else would come and lay their feet, uh, lay their coats down at the feet of the one that was giving the green light, take their coat off so they can roll their sleeves up and kill this guy. Okay, so Saul, who's going to be later Paul, was the one that was giving the green light to this execution. And they stoned Stephen. And think of how long of a process this stoning had has to be. 
that in the midst of it all, uh, he is calling out on God and saying prayers, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, uh, echoing Jesus, right? And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. By the way, this is all in the middle of the stoning. Lord, do not charge him with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So death for a Christian is just falling asleep. Rest in peace, you know. Um, but it was a long, it was a long process. But the Holy Spirit gave the power and the boldness to stand up for him in the midst of such trials. Now, real quick, uh, we're just going to get a little more context here. Chapter eight, verse one. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That means he gave the green light and said, "Yeah, kill Stephen." And this begins the great persecution that's going to arise. There's something that happened in Paul or Saul of Tarsus when Stephen is preaching. It just ticked Saul off. And the Holy Spirit was ministering to him. But instead of receiving Jesus, he resisted Jesus. And I believe that this is what Jesus is talking about in chapter 9 when he tells Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Man, didn't Stephen's sermon, wasn't it just prodding your heart the whole time? And he's kicking at it. No, no, just kill him. Get him out of my life. But you can't kill the gospel. It only spreads the gospel. In fact, right here next week, we're going to see the gospel spread um, because of that. And later on in Acts chapter 22, I think it is, um, when Paul is telling his testimony, he tells about how that he was the one that gave the green light for Stephen's death. And that affected him for the rest of his life. Had major impact in Saul of Tarsus. So, that's... That's it. <laughs> Ooh, what a history lesson, huh? Um,